today's scripture reading is from Psalm 46 to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, well, I've been joking that the Sundays after Christmas are where youth ministers across the country are like, this is our time. <laughs> Pastors are on vacation. Crowds are slim. This is when they need us. And uh, Matt, in his wisdom, uh, is letting me preach today to probably lessen some of the damage that's going to go out from this pulpit um, since there are fewer. But there's a lot of you here this morning, so joke's on y'all. Um, my name is Austin. Uh, I'm on staff here uh, as, the, as the youth director, and I grew up in rural North Alabama. And my grandmother would tell me stories when I was growing up because uh, she was married to a farmer, a cattle farmer. And she would, he was a man of few words, my grandfather. And so she would be sent to the hardware store with very little to go on of what she needed to pick up for him. Uh, and so she would just like walk into the hardware store and start kind of fumbling around with her words, telling what little she knew. She would say, well, I know it's a 78 Massey Ferguson, and I know that I need a piece that attaches to the yellow coil and the silver thing over here. And the hardware guy would be like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Just give me a second. I'll run and get it. And I say that uh, because I feel like the Psalms, I feel like the Psalter, it's kind of like that for us uh, as human beings, as, as we seek to kind of sort out and express our often confused hearts uh, to God, the Psalms give us words to say when we're speechless. When we kind of know how we feel, the Psalms are places we can go that kind of help us articulate our hearts back to God in worship. And so I've started saying that the Psalms are like a spiritual bus stop, if you will, uh, that they're like places we can go that take us where we need to be, or that the Psalms are places we can show up to that end up taking us where we need to be, which is near God, near Jesus. So where are we this morning, and where do we need to be this morning? Well, I, I want to hold out to you the claim that Psalm 46 is a song of hope in the face of great fear, that it's a song of hope in the face of uncertainty and anxiety, that we've been given a song to sing in those moments. Because, and I know you're tired of hearing sentences like this, but we just, we live in a historical moment where we just do not know what is going to happen week to week. It's a toss-up every single week. What is the CDC going to say next? 
What is COVID going to do next? How is that going to impact my job? How is that going to impact my school? What about my kids? What about their relationships? What about my relationships? Why is the SEC so underwhelming in bowl games? And I know we are so sick of this word, but we, we are just faced with an unprecedented amount of unknown, of just uncertainty. We're just constantly adrift in this sea of fear and anxiety and uncertainty. And if we're not careful, we will be living our lives in this like survival mode, scratching and clawing to have control, constantly wondering, will it be all right? What is my life going to look like? We live a lot of our lives in this mode of fear. And I'm part of this pastoral cohort group that meets in Tupelo, Mississippi, like every six weeks. And we did this emotional intelligence exercise, and they pulled out this big colorful wheel, and I was already kind of rolling my eyes just because I don't like those things. And, um, but it really, it really stuck with me. There were these kind of core emotions at the center of the circle, six or seven that are kind of the basic underlying underneath subterranean emotions that we're feeling. But then it spreads out and it shows you kind of how they actually manifest themselves on the surface. And so what I did was I started looking at that outer ring and I was like, okay, what do I kind of most normally feel? And then what major emotion is that attached to? And so I started looking at things like overwhelmed, worried, inadequate, inferior, insignificant, excluded, worthless, nervous, exposed. I was like, yeah, that seems about right. (laughs) And all of those trace back to fear. And I don't even know if I knew that fear was an emotion, and I definitely didn't think that I felt it that often. But after that exercise, I was like, ah, I'm kind of shaken up. Like, maybe I'm a lot more afraid than I thought I was. And so if any of those words that I just listed describe you, uh, and I know that they do because you're a living, breathing human being here this morning, um, I think that the author of our psalm has deep experience with the exact same thing. And uh, it's an evergreen, kind of perennial part of the human experience. And so where do we go when we feel afraid, when we need hope to combat it? I think we go to places like Psalm 46. And I want to think about that psalm in three ways. Hopefully briefly this morning, uh, I want us to see that Psalm 46 shows us how God reveals our fears, replaces our fears, and then removes our fears. So first, Psalm 46 and the revealing of our fears. Read verse 1 with me again. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So the, the first thing to kind of see is that this is not a conditional statement. Uh, this is not an if-then statement. It's not saying that God would be a present help if trouble were to somehow come upon my life. It, it assumes that trouble's coming. It assumes that that's a natural part of living in this fallen world, this side of the fall, this side of heaven. And it doesn't promise the immediate removal of trouble. It doesn't necessarily even offer the lessening of the intensity of trouble and pain and sorrow, but what it does is it, it holds out the offer of God's presence with us in our sorrow, in our trouble, in our pain and suffering. And it actually holds that out as the better option. Uh, the biblical worldview, the Christian way to, to look at reality, which is so upside down and backwards, is to say that I would rather have the presence of God in the midst of all this danger, trouble, and suffering, uh, than to have a life free from suffering and free from trouble, if that life is also free from God. Uh, I would rather have trouble with God in it 
the no trouble and no God. That's the biblical worldview on the table. And so it makes me think of this story that I heard uh, from a good pastor friend of mine that's really stuck with me over the years. Uh, He and his family were on vacation or a trip of some sort. And I don't have experience with that, but I just heard that like when you try to take a vacation with kids, that is not a restful trip. That is like a war. Like it is like a battle of attrition that you are in. And so you're in a foreign bed, you're in some like random hotel room. And he said that his daughter just woke up crying and just couldn't go back to sleep. No matter what he did, he couldn't soothe her. He was just, he's exhausted, she's exhausted. And he tried all he could do to get her to go back to sleep, and, and nothing worked. He just couldn't do anything about it. And so like all of us, when we exhaust all of our other options, we pray. And so he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed uh, that his child would sleep and give him peace. And it never came. Uh, I don't think she ever went to sleep. And he told us, he just said, I realized in that moment that maybe what God wanted was not necessarily to get rid of this situation I was in or to remove me from this situation I was in. Maybe what God wants is to force me into a position where I just have to spend time with him, where I just had to pray. I was, I was just spending time with him, dialoguing with him. <laughs> that maybe what we need more than a, than a peaceful night of sleep or, or a quiet child was to just be near God, to just experience his reality and his existence and my involvement with him. And look, I know that a, a crying child in the middle of the night pales Uh, in comparison to some of the awful horrors and tragedies uh, that people in this room have had to walk through. But that principle remains the same. What if instead of taking away your trouble, the God of the Bible, the God who is there, is actually more interested in in having you turn to him in those moments, to acknowledge him, to, to start a dialogue with him, to just be near him, and to, and to feel that, that he is intimately near to you. And so I, I just love that the message of the Bible, that, that the gospel of Jesus, it, it is just utterly realistic. That the hope of the God of the Bible is not some pie-in-the-sky idealism where when you believe in him, everything is just going to be okay for you for the rest of your life. But that trouble is actually promised, and it's assumed. And yet that having God in the midst of that trouble gives your trouble meaning. And it actually gives your trouble purpose and significance and value that it couldn't have without God, right? Think about it. If there is no God for whom all of human history and all of human activity is ultimately the goal, then all of the evil and the pain and the suffering that we experience is meaningless. There's no redemptive arc Uh, There's no good news. It is just cold, empty suffering (laughs) in a universe without God. And so only the God of the Bible actually gives your suffering purpose and meaning and value. And it's because he says, that's actually where I meet you most. That's actually where I'm closest to you. And so if I can just make a beeline to Jesus Christ for a second, it's also only the God of the Bible that actually enters into that suffering that we experience And he actually ultimately takes it on himself in the cross, defeating it forever. And so briefly, right, God is a present help in trouble. He doesn't remove us from it. He gives it meaning, right? He he gives us himself in it. And it's that truth, it's that truth that causes the psalmist in verse 2 to say, therefore, I don't have to be afraid, right? In the words of Kevin McAllister, I'm not afraid anymore, right? He says, therefore, because that's true, I will not fear. 
And I love what the psalmist does next. He starts to list these like potential future fears, right? He says, but, but what if the earth gives way, right? What if the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea? Essentially, what if everything I ever thought I knew just up and vanished in one moment, right? What if life as I know it just gets completely taken out from under me? What if all of my worst fears come true? What then? encountering the God of the Bible, what it forces us to do is reveal what we actually are afraid of. What are you actually afraid of? Right? According uh, to the Old Testament prophet Micah, he says that fear, short definition, fear is simply to stand in awe of something. To stand in awe of something. And look, most of the issues that, that you and I struggle with in our lives, it's because we're just standing in awe of the wrong things. Right? We stand in awe of the wrong things. And so what we see is that fear... It's not the opposite of faith. It reveals what your faith is in. Fear, it's not the absence of faith. What fear does is it shows you what your faith is actually really in. Right? Consider it this way. To, to, to quote this theologian named Justin uh, Holcomb, he says, Our emotions are always about something. And so if fear is an emotion, our emotions are always about something. They always have an object. They tell us something about what we value and what we believe. And so what are our fears about? What, what are your, what's the object of your fears? What are the things that if you lose them or if they happen to you, make you feel like the earth is crumbling underneath your feet? If having financial security is your refuge and your strength, then you will feel crushed when the markets tremble and when your savings give way, because they inevitably will. Uh, look, maybe it's slowly realizing that you just don't have that much control over how your kids turn out, uh, whether you do all the right things or all the wrong things, that a lot of it's just not up to you. Maybe that makes it feel like your world is giving way. Maybe it's a job change or uh, a job loss, or maybe it's just realizing that you just really aren't all that happy and satisfied in your work, but you've sunk all this money and time into it, and so you just kind of feel trapped, and you realize that, and you're like, it kind of feels like my world's giving way. If having social acceptance from the right people, if that's your very present help in trouble, then what, what happens when you inevitably get snubbed by the people you want to be in with? What, what, what happens when you get rejected by the type of people that you just have to have on your team? Our fears, it's not the opposite of faith. Our fears reveal what our faith is really in. And so look, if the anchor of your soul isn't lodged into something eternal and unchangeable, if it's not anchored somewhere up there in heaven, untouchable, then your world will fall apart. And your life will fall apart with it. And Psalm 46 shows us that even if the unthinkable occurs, right? To quote Hamilton, even if the unimaginable happens, God is faithful to his promises. I, I can actually not be afraid. Right, but how does that happen, right? What do we do when we realize what our fears are? When our fears have been revealed to us and we realize that we're really afraid of shakable, losable things, what do we do? We replace them. We replace them with something else. And so God reveals our fears to us so that he can then replace them with himself. Right, so, so read verse 4 with me. It says, there is a river. Right, This is like a contrast. He's like, look at the earth shaking and melting. But there's this river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. 
And so look, this place that the psalmist is talking about that he's looking to in the midst of all this trouble, it is utterly opposed to the previous descriptions, right? It's solid, it's firm, it's secure. It's a place of joy and solace and peace. There's no chaos, there's no tumult, no fear. And what makes it that way? Well, the only thing that makes it that way is that God's there. That that's where he lives, that that his presence is there. That's where you find God. He's in the midst of this city. He's present there. Everything that makes this this river, and look, and if we're being honest, you read that and you're like, well, that's kind of boring. I don't don't know if a river in a city is like what I need, you know, on my bad days. But all of it revolves around the fact that that's where God is. There's this book that I've never read uh, that I've heard a lot about called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's written by a really old dead Christian named Thomas Chalmers. And um, in the book, what he talks about is our need for our hearts to find something else to latch on to. Right? Something more beautiful to us to love and to behold before we could ever loosen our grip on these other things in life. Right? He calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. And I hope this lands. I hope that I'm not the only one who experienced this in middle school and high school, if you can dig into your blacked-out memories of those awful days. But do you remember how, like, when, when, a, when, a, when, a, when a relationship would end, you were just like, I can, I'll never get over this. <laughs> this will follow me for the rest of my life. I will never get past this person. Uh, all the other prospects in life were nothing compared to them. You could never even entertain the idea of moving on from this person until, like, two weeks later when you meet someone else right? And you get this new affection and it expels this old one. You don't even know who they are anymore because you're infatuated with this person, right? And so we need the same thing. We need our fears to be replaced. We need, we need to stand in awe of something greater, right, than the things that we used to fear. We need the expulsive power. We need a new fear. We need, we need a bigger and better fear. And so look, what if losing that city, this river, that city, God's presence, what if losing that was your biggest fear? And what if that replaced all of your other fears, all of your smaller fears? And so in the face of raging seas and shifting earth, what the psalmist does is he looks to that city, that celestial heavenly city, that future potential, that promise, and he rests his hope in that, right? He's afraid over here of these, these, this potential chaos, this potential future upheaval, but he points his hope and he replaces it with something real and something better, something sure, Right? with the current reality of God's existence. One, one commentator says it's like this. It's like, imagine being in a city that's surrounded, right? You're, you're under attack, you're under siege, but you've got this secret water source that no one else knows about. And so you can be nourished, and you can actually thrive and survive in the midst of being under attack. He says that God's grace convinces the psalmist that God's people will not only survive the unthinkable, but that God's people can actually thrive in the midst of the unimaginable. Because God's people are actually so intimately wrapped up in God himself, right? They belong to him so intimately. They are one with him. They're united to him, right? If your faith is in Jesus this morning, you belong to someone who will not be denied, who cannot be thwarted, who cannot be defeated. Verse 5 means that as sure as the sun rises, as sure as the sun rises, God will help us. He will. It's just a fact of existence, and in this replacement of our lesser fears with the greater fear, that's when you actually start to see the removal of your other fears. Right? The things that used to scare you no longer seem as daunting as they once were. Right? That as God reveals what you're afraid of, and as he replaces those fears with himself, you can actually start to experience life that is a little more free from fear. 
that that's a real promise, that's good news, that you can actually experience a life that's a little less free of fear. And so God reveals our fears so that he can replace our fears with himself. And finally, he removes our fears. So look at verse 8. It, it, it says, come. Right, there's an invitation. Come with me and behold the works of the Lord. Come with me and look at what God has done. What the psalmist is doing, essentially, he's saying, look at God's past dealings with us, with Israel, with the world, and let that comfort you. And let that comfort anyone else who sings this song. Let it remove your fears. He says, look at what God has done in the past. Behold the works of the Lord. Remember everything that he's done for us up to this point. Another way that you could translate verse 1 is that God, he's not only a present help, but you could also say that he's a well-proven help. He's a well-proven fortress. It's not just a hypothetical. He's proven it in history with his actions. And you can look at that and say, well, surely in the midst of our uncertainty and our fear of the unknown, like, look at what he's done in the past. Surely we'll be okay now, no matter what. Right? He was probably thinking of the Exodus. He's saying, look, man, remember how God miraculously freed us from slavery in Egypt, brought us out from Pharaoh, took care of us in the wilderness, brought us into the promised land. Like, surely we can trust him with our fears. Surely we can trust him with our uncertainties. And look, we, we have the same ability as Christians too, right? We, what we do is we look, at back, we look at each other and we say, man, look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ, right? That God became man, right? Jesus is the personification of this song. He's our Emmanuel. He is God with us, become like us. We sang it all last month, right? He's God come down to be with us, to dwell in our midst. He's been here. That's how we live without fear. That's how our little fears start to get removed because they've been replaced with this one bigger fear that we actually stand in awe of Jesus Christ instead of standing in awe of people's opinions or my bank account or my kids, we look at the cross of Jesus and we stand in awe of it. It's a historical reality. His triumph over death and sin, his resurrection. And so we know, we can look at that and we can know God will keep his promises. He will come through for us. He already has. He's already saved us. He, he hasn't abandoned us anyone. And so look, in the face of an unknown future, in the face of uncertainty and fear, we, like the psalmist, we have to ground our hope in the known acts of history that God has revealed, knowing that he will keep his promises to us because he has. He's well proven. He's done it. And so it's, it's actually knowing that, it's actually believing that, that can allow you to submit to the command of verse 10, right? It says, be still and know that I am God. And really up until studying for this, I just always thought of that verse as like one of the pretty ones that you get a calligrapher to put on a canvas with like, you know, soft grass and like a, a babbling brook and just be still and know that I'm God. But it's kind of a command. Like there's kind of a forceful sense of challenging here where he's like, no, 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 you, you need to be still. You need to stop. And so it is comforting, right? Because it's this, it's a paradox. It's a command to rest. It's a command to do nothing. It's like saying, hey, sit still and don't do anything. You're like, okay. It makes me think of those like countless movie scenes. I can't even pick just one where you have this like overworked protagonist, you know, this like workaholic who's like drowning in their own work life. They have no social life, no personal life. And, and their boss and their, their, their fellow employees are like, we're like forcing you to take paid time off, you know. But, but their identity is so wrapped up in what they do. They're like, I, I can't take time off. Like, I don't know who I am if I'm not working. And we're, we're the same way. It, 
in the middle of our fearful, fretting, busy bodying that we do so often, God challenges us and actually he, he commands us to be still, to stop and to realize and remember that he is God, not you, not your kids, not your finances, not your marriage. He is God. Oh, and by the way, all the nations are going to exalt me. All the earth's going to worship me. <laughs> so just please, for your sake, will you come to me? Will you be still? I know the end from the beginning. I know how it's all going to end, and we win, right? I'm going to be exalted. It's all going to be okay. And so look at this last verse, verse 7. Um, it's, or, sorry, the last verse in verse 7, they're the same. It, it's a refrain. It says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Uh, look, probably one of the best things about moving to Memphis so far, other than getting to know all of the students and families uh, at Redeemer, has been being uh, initiated and indoctrinated into Grizzlies fanaticism. Uh, it has just been so much fun, and so many of y'all have made that possible for me, Meredith, and it's been amazing. And I remember seeing this video somewhere as I'm, you know, spending hours perusing John Morant highlights. Where and, and I, I checked with our local Grizzlies experts, the Smiths, the Ivies, the the Walkers, and they told me that it was uh, during a Cavaliers game near the beginning of this season. And uh, just imagine being at the Forum. And the game is close, and it's in the fourth quarter. You're down to the final seconds, and all hope of a win seems minuscule and diminished. And yet John Morant does what he does, and he defies the laws of human physics, and he makes his way to the basket somehow, and he secures the win, and the form just erupts, and the place is going crazy, and it's on fire. And what he does, this is amazing. I get chills when I think about it. He looks at the crowd, and he says, y'all have got me. He says, y'all have got 12. You've got me. And in that moment, do you think anyone in that crowd is afraid anymore? They're like, no, we got 12. Like, we're going to be fine. He's going to win game winners for the next 10 years for this franchise, right? All Memphis residents can sleep happily and calmly because they got 12, right? Look, we have the Lord of hosts. Literally, we, that means we have the Lord of angel armies. We've got Jesus. We've got the Lord of hosts, the one who could speak and the earth would melt, the one who spoke and created the earth. And that God became a man, became a human being to dwell with us 2,000 years ago. And on a Roman cross for a crime he didn't commit, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, for a moment, he felt the weight of his earth giving way under his feet. He felt the palpable separation from God, the thick darkness of being cut off from his father. He felt the power of an almighty God raining down justice and wrath and judgment on all of our sin, all of the evil that the world's committed, so that we, so that you and I here this morning in Memphis, Tennessee, 2,000 years ago, so that we could be still, so that we could know that he is God, that he is our father, that we are his sons, that we won't ever have to bear the punishment that our sins deserve, right? Which, which, if you think about it, that is the one thing that we should fear most, that at the end of my life, I would have to stand before a just and holy God and bear the consequences and punishment that all of the evil I've ever done deserve. And so think about it. When your biggest fear will never happen, doesn't that just kind of make all of your other fears fade into the background just a little bit, right? If your biggest fear... God leaving you, God abandoning you, God forcing you to deal with the consequences of your actions, when that is off the table, it can kind of help all of our small, lowercase f fears fade into the background a little more. 
Look, this is obviously an imperfect example, but when I was only dating and only engaged uh, to my wife, Meredith, there was still some ever-present fear and insecurity, right? Even after engagement, you're like, she could still up and leave if she really wanted to. It'd be kind of messy, but uh, she could still leave. She could still wise up and get out of here if she really wants to. But on our wedding day, when we're holding hands and looking in each other's eyes and saying vows, like, those fears are gone. Like, she, she is stuck. <laughs> she can't leave. You know, like, those fears dissipated because she made promises. Right? She made promises to me. And what we have in Jesus is like that, but infinitely better. Right? The Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ is yes and amen to every promise God has ever made. He's proof that he's going to come through, that he keeps his word. Uh, I love to ask our students this, like, really unfair trick question. Uh, I love to say, like, hey, do you think God can do anything? And very quickly with a devout yes, or with a devout tone, they're like, yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm always like, what, could he lie? And they're like, (laughs) Um, But I love that, right, because it's good news that God can't do anything. He can't lie. He can't sin. He can't not keep his word to you. And so when you realize that the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you, an eternity without God, God abandoning you over to your sins and their consequences, when you realize that that will never happen to you, all your other fears can finally start to melt away. That that is how the removal of our fears can start. Our fears start to become smaller, Christ starts to become bigger, and we start to become stiller and less afraid, right, As, as God reveals our fears to us, as he replaces them with himself, and as he starts to remove our fears from us. And so that is the hope of the gospel, to come. It's an invitation. Come and behold. Look at Jesus. Look at the works of God in Christ. Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, uh, that you have not left us in the dark about who you are and what you've done for sinners, that you've given us Jesus. God, that we can be confident, that we can trust that you, you're a God of your word. You're going to keep your promises that you'll come back for us, that you're eventually going to break the bow, shatter the spear. You're going to cause wars to cease, and we thank you for that. We pray that that would be our hope, that that's where we would anchor our hearts and our souls this week, and that we would start to see all of our other fears become smaller as you become bigger. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.